Welcome, you're listening to Cantus Firmus. My name is Cody Cook, and I'm speaking today with Nick McGoran. He is the author of Warlike Christians in an Age of Violence. Nick is a political geography lecturer at Newcastle University uh, in the School of Geography, Politics, and Sociology. So uh, anyway, uh, so Nick, why don't you tell us a little bit more about yourself than, than what I gave in that, in that brief bio, uh, particularly your religious and professional background and why you decided to write the, the book that you did. Yeah, thank you. And uh, a warm greeting to all your, your listeners. I, as a little boy, I would look at a map of the world and I'd think to myself, well, there's Germany in red and there's France in green. And I'd always ask to myself, what colour are the people who live on the line? Who did, where did that line come from? And that took me into political geography. I research international boundaries around the world and geopolitics. So I'm interested in these big questions about how and why we divide the world up between ourselves into different spaces and say, this is mine and this is yours. Mm. And how that gets violent and what can we do about that? And I'm a follower of Jesus. I... I grew up with a church background, a, a, a charismatic, low church, Episcopalian background, and and then really came to faith myself as a student, a real understanding of the sinfulness of sin and the uh, and the and the, the complete work of of Christ on the cross in atoning for our sins, and uh, and then the the book came out of a, a dissonance between these two uh, these two backgrounds really so growing up in britain we'd grow up with stories and films about the second world war and killing all the baddies and things and yet the bible clearly seemed to teach we should love our enemies and i couldn't really figure out how those two fitted together uh, and so increasingly in my my 20s and 30s i came to understand that the gospel of peace is not simply good news for individual sinners separated from god it is. It's not simply good news for uh, a human race separated from God. It is. But it's also good news for a race of people divided against each other and warring with each other. The gospel of peace is about that. And it's it's about how we can live a new reality that uh, that moves beyond war. And so the, the, the book was written because I, I wanted to try and uh, and explain that clearly, but particularly for an evangelical audience who would claim to take the Bible seriously and do take it seriously, but when it comes down to questions of war, are often more influenced by Hollywood and Hollywood depictions of righteous violence mm. than by Holy Scripture, who will take the Bible seriously, except when it's teaching about war, and uh, and who believes that believe that God has saved their souls, but don't trust Him to save their bodies. They think they need military violence for that. So it was, it was written with a belief that the, that the gospel, as revealed in scripture, is good news for the whole of humanity and for a, and for particularly for a warming world. Political geography, though, it is interesting because I've read a lot of books on um, these issues related to uh, violence and nonviolence from a Christian perspective. Uh, but I've yet to read one from somebody with your background. And it does shape the way that you write in the book and the way you approach some of these issues, at least at least in my reading. And I was curious how how you felt that that brought a different perspective to, to this issue. I think it does. I mean, I think one of the disadvantages in the book is, for example, I'm not a trained theologian, so I can't read the scriptures in their original languages. So I think that's a disadvantage. But 
on the other hand, and I think there are two aspects of my my training that 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 allow me to bring a different perspective. The first is that I am interested. I do field work, so I have com- I have conducted a lot of research in Central Asia, in Uzbekistan and Kyrgyzstan, uh, and in other parts of the world for my, my my standard day job. And so, in writing this book, I visited uh, people in uh, people from Nigeria, people in East Africa, speaking to Christians in Asia who faced violence and faces every day, and are responding to it non-violently too much theology too much too many books about war christian books about war are written from simply from libraries and theologians citing other theologians with really little understanding of of war and its violence and its dynamics today so that's one aspect it's fieldwork based if you like there's lots of mm. real stories and real people in there and um, i think the second the, the second aspect is this i study geopolitics and geopolitics is the study of how we think about the world as being divided into certain types of places so first world or third world the the, the communism versus capitalism um, safe spaces bad spaces axis of evil um, etc so, um, so it's 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 how we think about the world as being divided in certain types of places, and what what struck me is that many books by Christians on war have are, are overlaid with a whole series of assumptions which which are very Western, that the that the very Anglo-American, that the British and Americans, so for example, in the Second World War is one I pick out in particular where. Uh, the violated innocence fighting pure evil rather than seeing that set seeing the second world war as a clash of imperialisms so uh, so i think both the the, the practical field work but also the uh, the theoretical approach to questioning the assumptions we have about international relations um, mean it's a different type of book to many of those that are written about war and i would also say um i, I would also say that it uh, that 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 is evangelical uh, and is attempting to take scripture very seriously, uh, which most books about about war and Christianity, I, I don't think are consistent in that way. Yeah, yeah, I agree with that. I, I see that as a, a major problem um, in this field is that um, I'll be I'll be reading someone and and following along very well with them and thinking the arguments make sense, and then they'll they'll suddenly pull some kind of something out of left field that really seeks to kind of undermine. The value of scripture and it seems to me that we're, we're really that approach really undersells the witness of scripture to peace because it suggests that you know well you know if you really take the bible seriously you can't hold this position <laughs> which is the opposite of, of, of what's true um so i, I appreciated the fact that you, you wrote from the perspective as a, you know as an evangelical who took who takes a, a scripture seriously um and you know, kind of in that vein, what what has the response to the book been? I think it's been it's been mixed. So, um, so from traditional um, peace churches, which often tend to be more liberal, they have liked the arguments about nonviolence, but they have balked a little bit at, at the authority I place on scripture um, as uh, 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 as inerrant revelation. Um, 
in terms of the evangelical community, the community I most wanted to speak to, people have appreciated when it's been, when I've, had, when I've had interviews and it's been reviewed, I think people have appreciated generally the attention to scripture and the the, the citing of authorities like Lloyd Martin Lloyd-Jones and Spurgeon, but they haven't been fully persuaded by my argument, particularly because they tend to see the Second World War as somehow a paradigm of, of, of for, for for Christian warfare. If you like, that this was clearly good versus evil, and we had to be on the side of of the Allies. Um, so I think it's it's had the effect of getting people to think, mm. even if it hasn't fully persuaded them. Well, and, and you you brought up um, the Second World War again. I think that. That is a valuable uh, detour in this conversation. And you also brought up Hollywood. You know, we have all these films, you know, still today. I think we miss World War II because we felt that it was a war without moral ambiguity. You know, we still make Hollywood movies about the Vietnam War, but it, there are always these sort of these, these films with moral ambiguity, like all yes. over the place. Whereas, yeah. you know, if you're if you're killing Nazis, well, yeah, of course, they're, that's what they're that's what they're made for. They're there for us to kill. Uh, and it was interesting because you do have a, a pretty lengthy uh, section on your book addressing World War II from the perspective of uh, you know geopolitics um, as opposed to just sort of you know the way we sort of see it where we, we decontextualize everything that happened and, and just focus in on well look at the the, the Nazi atrocities that took place um, and you know start from start from that vantage point. Um, and so, it, I, I, obviously, I don't want to, uh, uh, <laughs> to take a giveaway too much because I still want people to, to get a hold of the book. Um, but I'd be interested in hearing you maybe discuss a little bit of, of, of where, where you see that uh, problem being kind of a dead end and, and, and misleading. Uh, yeah, how I, we think think, about these I think people will often say you can talk about scripture and loving your enemies and people can see that in scripture. Uh, but then people say, what about Hitler? What about Hitler? And the assumption there was that you had America and Britain fighting an evil antichrist almost who was committing these atrocities against the Jews. Now, there's a whole series of problems with that. The first is that um, the, the church in Germany was largely supportive of Hitlerism, the established church for the most part. The, the, secondly, the second problem is that we, we didn't know about the atrocities against the Jews when we entered the war. And, uh, and there was a, a Jewish historian who um, wrote a book called The Abandonment of the Jews. And, and this book was about the, the, the Americans in the Second World War and how there were repeated requests from Jewish leaders, please rescue, please bomb the, the gas chambers in Auschwitz, for example. Uh, uh, please drop leaflets warning Jews to try and flee. Please provide money to help us rescue Jews. Please help. And, and the Americans and British refused to help. So we weren't trying to help the Jews. And, and, and a third part of the argument is that our the, the, the allies were Britain and America. France is a bit ambiguous. Part of France was with the Nazis. But the other main ally was, of course, the Soviet Union. The Soviet Union... Uh, killed more people, were more of its own population than than Hitler did. The Soviet Union had a deliberate and concerted attempt 
to annihilate Christianity. They kill 70,000 priests and hundreds of bishops. They try to destroy the Christian faith. And by allying with, with them, we didn't do that because we were moral. We knew the atrocities that they were performing. We knew that they were um, attempting to annihilate Christianity. We allied with them because we thought it would help preserve the position of Britain and America in the world. So I, I, I challenge the idea that the Second World War was this moral, unambiguously moral crusade of good versus evil. And then I also look at, at possible alternatives. What could nonviolent resistance have looked like? Uh, and so I give the example of a number of cases where Christians in Germany were able to reverse policies. For example, the the Nazi policy on euthanasia of the um, mentally disabled. Uh, the Christian churches were able to to um, resist that and stop it, but by denouncing it because the Nazis feared the influence of the Christian churches. Uh, if the Christian churches had had denounced Hitlerism and denounced the war, then the Second World War could never have taken place. But, um, but, uh, but the majority of, of churches were solidly behind the foreign policy of the Nazi state because they believed God was on their side. They believed they were fighting the evils of atheism in the Soviet Union and, and German propaganda in the war showed as German forces liberated, as they called it, Soviet lands, priests who hidden their vestments at the time of the revolution, dug them out again, old churches were reopened and the Eucharist was celebrated for the first time since the revolution. And this was depicted on German television as a, a German media, sorry, as, um, as, as Christendom being restored against the evil ones and Germany as God's tool in the world. So I, I, I really try to unpick this simple moral story, A, that it was good versus evil, and B, that there was no other possibilities for nonviolent resistance there was. Uh, and so the, so the, when someone asked the question, well, what about Hitler? My answer is they are using, that, that, that is Christians appealing not to Holy Scripture, but to Hollywood and a Hollywood version uh, of, of the Second World War in order to do ethics. And the ground and base and final source of evidence for all Christian ethical reflection is not Hollywood. It's not tradition. It's not history and politics as we read it. It's Holy Scripture. It's interesting how we, um, we, we tend to come up against these arguments for pragmatic ethics um, all over the place and, and we deny them but then when it comes to uh, violence we sort of go well you can't live like Jesus is saying to live <laughs> yes. um, yeah it, it, and you discuss um, the efficacy of um, uh, for example the resistance in La Chambon in, in, uh, in France and some of these other places where nonviolent means were attempted and actually were, were fairly effective yes. um, and at the same time uh, from our perspective even if uh, I, I don't think we have to say that nonviolence is always the most effective uh, route in order to make our argument, because our argument is not necessarily, well, this is the most pragmatic approach. Our argument is this is what Jesus has commanded us to do. Yes. And I don't make an argument for nonviolence per se. If nonviolence is theorized as the the argument that the state depends on the cooperation of the population. So if that is with sufficiently withdrawn, the state's policies can be changed. 
this is a, sort of a, a political theory and this is not Christianity. Christians can use nonviolent tactics, but um, but 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 it, what what I think marks Christian peacemaking makes Christian peacemaking separate. Um, there are a number of factors. One is that is that martyrdom is a uh, is an honourable response to evil uh, in in scriptures in Revelation. The uh, we see that the uh, in Revelation chapter twelve the uh, the beast is is defeated by the. Uh, but by the word of their testimony in the blood of the saints is the expression that, that scripture uses that that when, it, when when a Christian chooses to not fight back against their enemies and is martyred as a result is, is killed as a result that is not a, a defeat that is a a martyrdom that it, that it brings glory to God and that's a more noble response to violence for a Christian but also uh, one of the th- arguments I try to trace in, uh, so, so that's against the argument that nonviolence is somehow some sort of uh, infallible political tool to bring change. It's not. But the other, uh, one of the other stories I try to bring out, and, and this again shows something of the, I think some of the influence of the some of the more charismatic sources I look at would be the miraculous power of God to intervene and save, and uh, and there's two examples are worth mentioning. Uh, Marie Monson, who's a very famous missionary to China, who whose work laid the foundation of the modern Chinese house church movement. Uh, there's a story that she was in a city in the in the 30s and it was being overrun, and they, they 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 the Christians in the compound were praying and praying and praying, and the the marauders didn't dare enter the compound and they that they'd seen these guardians these soldiers all around and there were no soldiers and mary monson believes that these were were angels god sent to protect them but a, a, a more concrete example i bring is is a man called kifa sempanji i interviewed him i went to uganda to interview him he was a church leader at the time of idi amin and on easter sunday in 1973 he'd hired the stadium in kampala and had a big open air service and lots of people were coming to faith in the midst of this terrible violence that was taking place. And Idi Amin saw this. Idi Amin was the dictator, mm-hmm. president of Uganda, and sent his assassins to kill Kifa Sempanji, this pastor. And he, they caught him by himself in his house and they surrounded him. They pointed their guns at him and they said, we're going to kill you. Is there anything you want to say before you die? And 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 Kifa Sempanji said he said this he said i will pray for you my uh, my life is not in danger my life is hid in god hid with with god in christ it is your lives that are in danger and i will pray that when you have killed me god will spare you from the eternal destruction of hell and it's quite a bold thing to say and and these assassins lowered their guns and said pray for us pastor and these people who'd come from this muslim background found faith in jesus and protected him and uh, and I interviewed Kiefer Sempanji about this, which is it's a famous uh, it's a famous book he wrote, his autobiography. I'd recommend everyone read it. And I and he said that the church discussed should they use violence, should they arm themselves to protect themselves. But they the conclusion was no, we trust in God. We're told to love our enemies, not to use violence. And so, what one of the challenges from the lives of people like him is, uh, and this is not an option that's open to people who are not Christians because they have no belief in the miraculous power of god we believe in the power of god 
to save our souls? Do we also believe that he can save our bodies, that we can trust ourselves to him and he can intervene miraculously? So in that sense as well, the book is trying to trace out something that's uniquely Christian. We believe in a God who is active and powerful and intervening in our world. And if it's his will, then he can miraculously intervene to save us and transform situations. If it's not his will, then to, to die being faithful to him as a martyr is also an honourable Christian testimony to peacemaking. So, yeah, I mean, the very powerful um, stories there. Um, I think a, a common argument, so we, we, we talked about World War II and in the United States we had our great civil war. And even though the South very clearly seceded over concerns about uh, being able to protect slavery, that wasn't really the reason why the North fought. But we tend to think of these, you know, battles that we, we see as, uh, you know, good versus evil, um, you know, the North versus the South or the Allies versus the Axis. But setting all that aside, I think we can at least theorize incidents where we look at other people. So it's, it's one thing to say, you know, I can be a martyr, but, but can I let others die? And there's a bit of a straw man in that um, it's often asserted that, you know, if you're a... Uh, and, and, and there, there's this, there's these questions over terminology, uh, you know, nonviolence or Christian pacifist or, or non-resistance or, or, or whatever. Uh, what, what's the term that you use in the book? Um, gospel uh, peace. Gospel peace. And but you know whatever whatever uh, terminology you prefer there, there, there's kind of a, a straw man of that that suggests that well, what you do is if you see somebody hurting someone else, you just stand there and watch, <laughs> and which which isn't the case, um, but. I think there there is a an emotional argument that can be made for if you're in a circumstance where um, you see your enemy, you see someone who's become an enemy because you're seeing them hurting someone who's innocent or someone you care about. Uh, so you care about the enemy and you want to love your enemy, but you also care about the innocent victim. And uh, presumably, you know, on on if, if you were to weigh those two, perhaps God would 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 in some sense you know, value the innocent victim over the enemy, you know, is there a point at which violence and, and, and maybe I'll specify lethal violence becomes an option um, out of, of, you know, love for others. Um, and how do you balance those, those different kinds of loves, you know, because you, you obviously can't love your enemy if you're killing them. So <laughs> how, how do these things work out practically in your view? Yeah, no, it's, it's a sort of question you hear a lot. And the implication behind it is that Christianity doesn't work in the real world. Yeah. Uh, and I, 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 and uh, what I, I, I like to do to, um, to, th to think about that question is to ask the context in which Jesus lived. So do you remember uh, there, was, there was a fashion when I was younger, people would wear wristbands and it would say WWJD, what would Jesus do? And that was the case in the UK and I think it was in the States as well. And... Uh, you know, we don't know what Jesus would do about Iraq or about Libya or all these things, but we we do know what Jesus did about Palestine. Jesus lived in the Lord Jesus grew up in a time of extraordinary violence. His land had been overtaken by an illegal and violent and immoral invasion of people who were just trying to destroy his culture and desecrate his religion. There were constant the oppression of of the Jews at the time of Jesus 
was extraordinary uh, massive taxation and people would get poorer and poorer and rising revolt and then there, there were retaliatory moments when people rose in revolt where tens of thousands of people would be killed at once jesus would have grown up um uh, 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 wondering where all the boys were around his age because they'd all been killed by herod right when he'd fled uh, and so the, the his land and cultural society was marked with this with the violence of occupation if ever there was a just war to be argued if ever there was cause to say well we should stand out and do something about this uh, this was the case and in fact at one point his disciples uh, we read in Luke that G Jesus says how I wish fire was kindled and then his disciples rush to him and say have you heard about uh, this you know, the, the, the Herod has mixed the blood of these mm. people with their sacrifices and um, and Jesus is this is inviting Jesus to stand up we've got to do something and he, he, he directs he directs their argument back on themselves and think about your own sin um, and um, and so Jesus uh, is confronted with the violence of Roman power repeatedly throughout his life and teaches his disciples to love his enemies. And it, it's not just the case as sometimes made that that this was an exception because our, our Lord was, <laughs> was was the was becoming an atoning sacrifice for, for our sin, which is true. But he taught his disciples to do the same and his, and his disciples did exactly the same. Um, so. Um, Peter, one of the things I write about in the book is Peter in, in, in Acts chapter 10 and Peter visits the visits Cornelius and defiles himself by entering this, not only this Gentile home, but the home of an occupying enemy soldier when the two nations are heading irre irrevocably for war and the Holy Spirit descends and, and, and Peter baptises them and this new nation is born. So, um, so no... Um, Jesus faced enemies as terrible or as violent as any we will face. And he consistently um, told his followers to love them. He modelled this. And, uh, and and Peter says in, in his epistle uh, that when Christ was on the cross, this was um, uh, this was a pattern for us to follow to, in enemy love. So I have no no truck with that argument. Now, of course, when we when we look at the news and we see terrible things happen in the world, there's this sense we have to do something. We've got to do something. Uh, but sometimes we can't do something. Sometimes it's better to do nothing than to do something really stupid that makes things worse. But the response, more generally, I think, is to properly be the church. And again, the argument going back to the Second World War, if Christian churches across Europe had consistently discipled their members not to be soldiers, not to take part in violence, to love their enemies. Then the Second World War or any war could never have happened. So it's this less glamorous, more longer term discipleship uh, properly being the church that is the church's response to war. So then the the, the solution to. Um, these theoretical military conflicts between good and evil in the future is to uh, is to evangelize with gospel peace. Yes, exactly, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So you know, uh, so, so, so we see this after the uh, when Europe is overrun by um, so 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 Britain, for example, is overrun by the Vikings. Um, we re we evangelize them, and now Denmark and Norway. You know, their, their church, their, their, their countries with large numbers of Christians. 
it's um it's preach the gospel preach the gospel be the church that's our response to violence that's our response to war amen so to to to, uh, shift gears a little bit um we talked about how um so many of these approaches don't uh, take the Bible very seriously and uh, how I thought it was refreshing that, that your book does um, there is still this kind of um, uh, elephant in the room maybe about divinely sanctioned violence in the Old Testament um, and in contrast to this divine imperative to turn the other cheek and lay down the sword in the new um, and there are some who would say well you know the Old Testament writers just completely failed to understand God and this is just a, you know evidence uh, that the Old Testament is not inspired. Um, there's other others who would say, well, maybe it's just a change in God's purposes, uh, or, or you know. There's, so there's all these sort of different different takes on what's going on here, and uh, it often goes back to this phrase, progressive revelation, which uh, really runs the gamut, you know, from basically all the options that I listed. <laughs> and but 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 does does progressive revelation mean that? Um, um, that the Old Testament is less inspired, for example, and does it also open the door that we may move forward in the New Testament era and abandon things that are, uh, you know, taught in the New Testament? Um, so no, no to both of those. Um, so I think the the important, uh, the, it's very important to understand the relation between the, the Old and New Covenants, that the... Um, Paul in Galatians writes about the role of the law and then Luther uh, translates this. He says the law was a, a schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. And Tom Wright, the British theologian, translates it as babysitter. The law was a babysitter. So in the in the uh, in, in the Old Testament period, God's it was always God's plan through history to build to call his people to himself as a holy nation. And in the Old Testament, this was a territorial entity. Uh, focused on Jerusalem and uh, and God's people were this closed ethnic territorial group who had these very tight laws to hem them in laws about what they could eat and what they could wear uh, uh, you couldn't wear a garment you couldn't eat prawns you couldn't wear a garment made of two materials um, all the sacrifices and uh, that had to be made at different times of the year all the purification rituals etc now all of that was pointing towards Christ. And when Christ died on the cross and rose again, the 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 the, the, the temple sacrifices and the ceremonial law was, was fulfilled. And so there was no need now for animal sacrifices. When the Holy Spirit is poured out at Pentecost and, and lives within us, the holiness of God's people is protected, not by shutting ourselves off in little communities, uh, and annihilating the nations who were who were in Canaan first, but simply through living in the world with God's power within us. So we have no more need. And in the Old Testament, holy war was there. Uh, and the laws of war in, in Leviticus are quite clear. If you um, for nations within outside the Holy Land, if Israel went to war with them outside the promised land, Canaan, they could make a deal with them. They could accept them as indentured labourers. They could trade with them, etc. But for those uh, peoples inside Canaan, they had to be completely annihilated, including all their goods and everything. Uh, and the sin of Achan, of course, is that he didn't, he didn't do that. So, uh, and, and the reason is this, the reason it's given in Old Testament is that so in Leviticus 20, so that these people 
don't pollute you, don't entice you to worship false gods. So war in the Old Testament wasn't about justice between nations. It wasn't about military strategy. It wasn't about international politics. It was simply about holiness. Uh, and so the, the parallel in the New Testament, we see uh, the holiness of the church is protected by God's Holy Spirit being poured out, poured out and by uh, by church discipline, declaring people anathema, excluding them from church until they have repented. So there's no more use for war now than there is for animal sacrifices or for uh, laws against eating prawns. So so it's not that God has changed in any way. God's holiness, God's plan through history was always to create this uh, this holy nation uh, uh, by by the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's just that there are different dispensations about how that is experienced. Um, and uh, and so progressive revelation in that sense is that people had a clearer understanding of the Messiah as the time of Christ drew closer and closer. So for, for, you know, the, the prophets in, in, this, in the 8th century and 7th century Isaiah had a clearer understanding of the Messiah than, than the patriarchs did, for example. Um, so no, God hasn't changed. And no, the people in, in, in the Old Testament uh, weren't misunderstanding his nature. Sure. And, and the, 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 the conclusion for that is you cannot use, you cannot say, uh, well, God allowed war in the Old Testament. So therefore, just war or, or, or some sort of warrior is allowed today. That's simply uh, dreadful exegesis. It's misreading and misunderstanding how covenants work in Scripture. Sure. Yeah. And the way I see it is, I mean, practically is that you have two, you know, if you will, kingdoms of gods. So you have a kingdom of God that's situated geopolitically in the Middle East. And then you have a kingdom of God, which is a spiritual kingdom. And, you know, Paul, Paul makes this pretty clear. He says, you know, the weapons that we fight with aren't carnal, they're spiritual. He's contrasting what it means to be part of a physical kingdom on earth. Uh, with being part of a spiritual kingdom, um, you know, of God and in heaven, if you will. Yes. Uh, yes. And so you fight different kinds of battles, different kinds of weapons, um, depending on you know what, what kind of a kingdom you're part of. So, yeah. Um, so yeah. So the you kind of hinted at it, uh, but but I really enjoyed in the book your discussion of just war theory and um, that. Uh, well, to, to, to put it simply, you don't think much of it, um, <laughs> and and I and I agree. It's it's essentially a, um, a an idea that the church has developed over time on the basis of uh, pagan philosophers, which you know pagan philosophers aren't always wrong. So there's nothing necessarily inherently wrong with that, but it isn't derived from scripture. Um, so we, we 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 take these ideas, we kind of run with them. You have Augustine give some very broad contours. Uh, and then, you know, by the time you get to Aquinas in the, in the Summa, uh, he, he puts together, uh, you know, his arguments for it and, and cites almost, you know, exclusively Augustine. Occasionally he references scripture, but not in any relevant way <laughs> for the argument. Where So in contrast, you build what, would, what it would look like if we were to create guidelines for war from the Old Testament, because there are no such guidelines for the new, in the New Testament. Uh, but if you were to get those guidelines from the Bible, they would be built on the Old Testament. And you point out certain um, conditions for war, uh, and then you contrast that with uh, just war theory. I don't know if you remember uh, some of the things you, you you wrote about as far as those what those conditions would be and guidelines. Yes. So 
that the laws of war in the Old Testament were that the uh, God's people were not allowed to use military technology. So you would see uh, that uh, one of the sins of David was not hamstringing the horses he'd captured. Um, that the God's people were not allowed to have chariots, for example. And this was so that the glory of uh, the glory of victory went to God, not to military technology. So an equivalent today were if, if you were going to use the uh, the laws of the Old Testament in that sense, you couldn't use military aircraft or tanks or guided weapons or anything. Secondly, that there had to be complete annihilation. So uh, the, the Geneva Conventions about Harm, not harming non-combatants and treating prisoners of warfare well would be would be godless, uh, would be blasphemy, apostasy. Uh, likewise, the um, that um, the the cause of the the cause of war in in the Old Testament was that God had ordered it in order to purify and protect His people. Um, whereas modern warfare would argue that that war, the modern rules of war, war is only just uh, for self-defense or if authorized by the United Nations Security Council to rectify a wrong. So it's a, it, it, it's a set of arguments that any particular um, nation on earth could apply, could use, whereas in the Old Testament, it's only there. For Israel, you see practices of warfare in the Old Testament, intentional military weakness, um, you see priests leading the battles out. You know, it, it, there's absolutely no way you could translate those in any meaningful sense to to modern warfare. Likewise, in the New Testament, uh, there's there's nothing about warfare. There's you're told we're told to love our enemies and bless them and be kind them, be kind to them. So uh, there's a one of the people I engage with, a theorist of war in the just war in the UK, um, Charles Reed, argues that just war theory he says you can't derive it from the old testament and you can't derive it from the new testament he says it's there to fill in the gap between the old and new testament now this is a liberal view just war theory is essentially a liberal theology uh, as an evangelical i believe there is no gap between the old and new testament that we need to fill in mm. um and, and so um that's a, that's a strange it, idea too that, that somehow we need to live between the old and new testaments <laughs> um but, but yeah, I mean, you're, you're right. So we, we have the option of utter, the utter annihilation of holy war or gospel peace. And, and so to, to try to fill in the, the some place in the middle as if we're, we're not supposed to live in the New Testament, uh, but but some other place that mediates between the two seems kind of crazy. Yeah, I mean, there's two, two other things I'd say. Firstly, just war theory is not about essentially about legitimizing warfare. It's, a, it's an attempt to try and make wars happen less <laughs> frequently so it, it, it's not a sort of bloodthirsty thing by limiting it but it doesn't work in practice and it's not christian um this the second thing about just war theory is it's not biblical it's an addition to christian thinking by the church in later periods and one of the things that surprises me most is that it wasn't ditched with the reformation so in the reformation we ditched lots of unbiblical things belief in indulgences for example, a lot of traditions that sort of accrued around the church, the idea of purgatory, all these sorts of extra biblical ideas that came in through the culture were ditched as we went back to the Bible. But we we didn't ditch just war, even though we should have done it. And I think one of the reasons is that the Protestant churches were also 
trying to locate themselves politically with princes in Europe and it was a way to be able to do that. Um, so I, I argue that, that that you have seen increasingly an erosion of belief in just war theory, uh, which which I think is the, is the belated working out of the uh, of Reformation principles about going back about sola scripture, just back to scripture. Well, yeah, and you know, I don't want to be too hard on on Luther, but um, there's almost kind of a a slight decadence, maybe. <laughs> in the way he approached some of these issues of, of holiness and behavior, uh, where, you know, in his reading of the Sermon on the Mount, well, this is a, you know, a wonderful, perfect standard that we could never achieve. And so, you know, <laughs> uh, we, we keep it up there as this thing to admire and look at, but it, all it really does is remind us uh, what sinners we are and how much we should rely on God's grace. And, uh, you know, so, you know, let's, let's, let's sin boldly and, and, and be forgiven boldly or whatever. Um, but 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 it's really based on this whole notion that some it's like this idea of living between the testaments that we can't really follow Christ, you know that we have to live in this real world scenario that that Christ I guess was too naive to understand, um, and so we, we we have to you know choose to fall short of, of following Christ. Yes, and what I think is very interesting is. It is this view that we see the Sermon on the Mount not as a not as a description of how we are to live or, or teaching on how to live, but as this sort of idealized pattern. Um, but it's but it's also the uh, the prophecies in in Micah and is it Isaiah as well that I think it is that that when the Messiah would come, the nations would beat their swords into plowshares and their spears mm. into heaping hooks and learn war no more. Now, it's very interesting that. The early church believed that had come to pass with Christ, that as when Christ was uh, died and was uh, and, and rose again and ascended to heaven, this was happening. And as Christians, as people came to faith in Jesus and eschewed warfare and turned from violence, the nations were beating their swords into into plowshares. This was happening. This is the gospel age. But by the time you reach Augustine, um, this is seen as a future prophecy oh, it hasn't it hasn't really happened yet it'll happen at the end of time um, and I, I think when when, when christians um let's look at the sermon about and say oh that's not for us that's for some great future time or ooh, beating swords into plowshares that's not for us that's for some time in the future we we rob ourselves of the potential to live a christ-like life of radical holiness and the church is poorer for that and the, and the world is poorer as well the church the world needs examples of christians really being christian yeah well and, and this whole idea of christians really being christian i think does bring us to this question of our relationship uh to the state um you know the the the, the you know the old style anabaptists the mennonites and amish for example they would see the command to not kill as a command for Christians. You know, the state is pagan and they may need to use violence to secure a necessary order. And that does serve God's purpose to some extent. Uh, but, you know, we just we just aren't a part of that. So it's almost like we're kind of this priestly class <laughs> in a way. But but we're also living separate um, from the world and, and, and the way that it lives. And then you have these this kind of more modern, um, you know, liberal Christian pacifism, um, which sees Christian nonviolence as you know this moral teaching that we can communicate to the state um, that you know pagan governments don't even really have an excuse for violence. Um, 
so there is this, I think, question about, um, you know, how, how, what's a Christian, uh, what's, what's a real Christian approach to this thing? Do, do we petition the government for certain policies? Do we uh, stay completely separate? Uh, how, how do we, how do we kind of walk this out when it comes to um, influencing the state, um, um, the state's policies on violence? I don't, I don't think there's a blueprint uh, yeah. for us to follow. Clearly, the apostles had no particular interest in trying to take over the levers of state power in the Roman Empire, uh, although they probably didn't have that the possibility to do that. Mm-hmm. I think that the um, that our call is first and foremost to to be the church, to live authentic lives in Jesus Christ, and to um, and, and to pray to pray for the leaders when we're told to that to honor honor the king and, and pray for the king. Peter tells us to do that. So. I think it's going to look differently, different in different contexts. So the example I, I looked at of Kiefer Sempanji um, against Idi Amin, he clearly, his church clearly made this decision to stand against against the state uh, and to disobey its rules. Uh, uh, you, you would see the well-known example in Britain of the the campaign to abolish the legal slave trade in the uh, late 18th and early 19th century, uh, led by evangelicals in Britain and by um, black slaves, freed black slaves in America, um, like Frederick Douglass, who had a big profound influence on, on the British movement, that they, they believed that it was it was right and proper in that circumstance to try and access the levers of state power to to make change. Uh, there was a, a another moment I talk about in, in, in my book in 19, I think it was 1979, I, I, I'd need to check the exact date, that uh, Argentina and Chile were on the verge of war, it might have been 1978, and the Catholic Church, which held this, was respected by both, stepped in at the last minute to help mediate and, uh, and prevent war. So, I think different Christians at different points in different places will find different ways to engage with the state, ignoring it, using it, resisting it to make peace. Uh, so I don't think there's a, I don't think there's a single blueprint there. Gotcha, but but it's not necessarily you wouldn't necessarily see it the way that uh, more conservative Mennonites or Amish do, where where they're just they're, there's absolutely no no um, uh, influence that's acceptable at all. No, and I, I, I very much like Paul's approach here. Mm-hmm. Uh, so um, there's this moment in Acts where he's he's held and he's beaten, and uh, and then he he, he tells the, the governor, you know, what the people are beating him. How dare you beat a Roman citizen? And Paul uh, and they said, oh, I didn't know you were a citizen. Sorry. Um, and then they, they, they're going to let him go. And then Paul is incensed. He said, do you think you're going to let me go without an apology? Call, you know, call the governor. So the governor comes and um, and, and Paul berates him and he apologises and, and sends him off. Well, it's very interesting. Um, to my mind, that is an example when uh, uh, when Paul says, when, when Paul's writing in, in Romans 12 and 13 about submitting to the authorities. I think that's what Paul's doing. He's calling them to live up to the vocation that they've been provided from God because one of the things I, I write about in, in the book is this idea of the powers and authorities having a mandate and a calling from God and the, and the, 
the job of the state is whether it's Christian or not, is to restrain evil and to promote good. And Christians are perfectly entitled to hold the state to account in doing that. And they might choose to do that by working in the organs of the state. They might choose to do that by protest. They might choose to do that by simply the exercise of of the vote. There's all sorts of different ways about that. Uh, and, and I don't think any is particularly set down in Scripture. Yeah, well, and I think um, the the model that that Paul gives there is is similar to what we see uh, from the Black Church in the United States, uh, which is uh, distinguishes itself both from the kind of more traditional Anabaptist separatist perspective, uh, but also distinguishes itself from the sort of uh, magisterial Christianity approaches of Protestantism and Roman Catholicism, um, because it doesn't seek to be separate from the state. Uh, it does seek to influence policy, but it does so from a, uh, a more prophetic vantage point, speaking uh, as s- somewhat of an outsider, um, but 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 holding the uh, the holding the state to an account because it's failing to live up to its obligations. Um, so I, I see that as, as having some some value in this discussion as well. Yes, 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 and like like you say, that's partially because of its particular location. Right, so it was excluded from power, so that's helped it develop that. Um, and different churches in different contexts have their own challenges. So in, in Britain, uh, the the Anglican Church, for example, ha- it, it is a state church, which I, I, I personally really can't get my head around. But it, nonetheless, it can use that position to try and influence influence for good in, in terms of peacemaking. So, you know... Um, I, I'm pleased that the, 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 the Christianity, the scriptures don't set down a template of how we are to relate to the state. There's no um, there's no caliphate type model in scripture uh, and Christian tradition, which I, I, I think is something that's very, very welcome, very wholesome. Sure. Sure. As, as long as we're staying true to love of enemy and gospel peace, we, we have some, some leeway maybe there. Yeah, I think so. So I'll, I'll end with uh, just one question here. Um, you wrote of the uh, appeal that Hitler had to Christians in Germany, despite the Third Reich's heretical views and practices, um, because Hitler had tapped into their fear that the culture was becoming progressive on social and sexual issues. Um, do you think that this kind of compromise uh, from more conservative Christians is an ever-present danger uh, for Christians who desire social power and influence? I think that's, that's a question which clearly arises from a U.S. context. Yeah, it, it it I don't I I don't see that as an issue in 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 the UK, um, but I remember, I read a book of sermons which was very striking, and it was sermons from the First World War actually in Britain and Germany, and the British sermons were using scripture to show that God was on their side, and the German sermons were using scripture to show that God was on their side, and each were equally convinced about it. Um, one of them at least had to be wrong, and I suspect both of them probably were. So, yeah, we, we can become um, very, it becomes very difficult for us at times to to uh, to take off the lenses of culture that we've used scripture with. And none of us can do it. We we all approach scripture from the, the background, the weight of culture and history about where we come from. And, and, and so one of the. One of the things that I see the value of church as it's helping us 
as a global church understand our own blinkers and our own blind spots and how culture the culture that we're in is influence our reading of scripture i think particularly in the united states you have um, one thing that's very striking is from the from the 70s onwards and early 80s the identification of conservative evangelicals with the republican party which wasn't the case a decade before then many conservative evangelicals will support republican republican party in it in its mainstream, in its broad approach, because the Republican Party on issues um, such as such as abortion might be closer to to a more authentically Christian position, or they might see uh, more left wing parties as 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 hostile, as secularist and hostile to Christianity, which to some extent might be true, but when that becomes then a blanket support of one particular party or a blanket condemnation of one particular party, then we're very much in danger of adopting that caliphate type model of believing we can impose the impose Christianity through state and through laws. When really our, our Lord said in, in, in Matthew that that um, wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction. There are many who walk on it, but narrow is the gate uh, and, and difficult is the way that leads to life. And there are very few people who find it and we don't help people find it by attempting to impose that on them through through law yeah i agree wow so nick thank you so much for taking the time uh to talk with us uh, about the book um it is available on amazon and um where, where i'm sitting here in the united states i see it's available for paperback and hardcover but it's only 9.99 on kindle which is a pretty good deal uh, and how how i read it um so I would definitely recommend uh, that folks get a hold of it. There are a lot of, um, I mean, really just, it really, what I love about the book is it does cover, I mean, really the kind of whole range of issues from, from you know, the Old Testament, uh, just war theory, uh, what about Hitler? I mean, there, there's so much that's kind of packed into this book that it becomes something like a handbook for, you know, uh, just kind of starting to think about these issues and, and, and dealing with um, objections that might come up. Um, so I would absolutely recommend that folks get all of that. Thank you. And I, I would also uh, recommend it to your 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 listeners. If they're the sort of people who like stories, because it's absolutely packed full of mm. biographical accounts of Christians across time and space who have struggled with questions of how to deal with violence and have found creative and inspiring ways. Um, so if you like, if you're the sort of person who likes to collect biographies for sermon illustrations you'll enjoy the book. And if you like reading the practical theology about what is what does this actually mean in the real world, then hopefully there'll be things in there that you'll enjoy too. So Warlike Christians in an Age of Violence, the Evangelical Case Against War and For Gospel Peace by Nick McGoran, available on Amazon. Thank you, Nick. Thank you very much. Blessings to you all. <laughs>